On this episode, I'm in the room with Colin Hansen discussing his new book, Blind Spots. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 30. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley, on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITR podcast, and for additional content, you can visit my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Colin Hansen. He's the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition, and also he's the author of a new book called Blind Spots, Becoming a Courageous, Compassionate, and Commissioned Church. In our conversation, we're discussing the blind spots common to all Christians, whether or not our convictions are shaped by personal experience, and how we can go about getting better at listening to those we differ with. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can win a free copy of Blind Spots from Crossway Books. Now get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Colin Hansen. Colin, thanks so much for coming on in the room. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of people are familiar with you, but in case they aren't, you're currently the editor uh, or the editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. And uh, I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about what that means and what your responsibilities consist of right now. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ryan. Um, I, it's uh, everything you see on the website, more or less, I'm responsible for. Not, not exactly in the same way. Um, our bloggers have a lot more autonomy, people like Kevin DeYoung and Justin Taylor and Tabidi Anibawile and, and uh, Trevin Wax. But, um, but a lot of the content we publish on a daily basis, so articles, audio interviews, video discussions, um, and then also any of the books that we publish, we do curriculum. Uh, for, for small groups and churches, we do, uh, do trade books, um, all sorts of different things. Then also related to events. So during our national conferences, we'll have 35, 40 workshops. So I help to plan things like that and do marketing and uh, related to, to those events. So it's a fun job. It's changed a lot in the five years that I've had it. Uh, organization has grown quite a bit. So it's gotten to be much more complex and international, but that's been a really fun challenge. It's a privilege. That's great. Well, you've been a part uh, very much of the larger conversation going on with e- within evangelicalism for a while now through blogging and social media and the Gospel Coalition and all of that. And I just wonder two things. What are you, what are you encouraged by that you kind of see happening right now? And then what are you concerned about? So we'll go both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, so encouragement, I... Anytime I'm talking to older church leaders, uh, and I'm 34, and I've been doing this for about 12 years now in, in professional professional ministry at Christianity Today, and then did seminary for a few years and continued to write books and articles, and then now at the Gospel Coalition for five years. But yeah. anytime I talk with older church leaders, they're more encouraged at this point in history than any other because they see, I mean, we're just sitting, Ryan, on a mountain of good published material that other generations could never have anticipated. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, at no other point in time could, in history, could I ever be, been published, especially at a younger age, because I didn't have some sort of huge built-in market. And 
yet we have publishers like Crossway that were willing to take a chance on me early on. And those aren't even the really great books. I mean, I'm just thinking about all of the historical stuff that's available to us that's never been available for. So we're just a ridiculously well-resourced church. And I think that does help us avoid some problems. Like you, you have no excuse. If, if you want to learn from history, if you want to learn from around the world, if you want to just immediately know what's happening with church leaders and connect with them anywhere via social media, via Skype, via anything like that, it's all available to you because of technology and because of just the absolute wealth yeah. of the Western church in particular. And we take all that for granted. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like uh, Louis C.K. He's the one talking about airplanes, right? Yeah. Comedian. It's like we complain about airplanes all the time, but you're flying through the sky right. in a chair. That's in right. In a metal tube. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. And so all these things we just take for granted um, would have been mind-blowing to other yeah. generations. The discouragement is... Well, it's just the flip side of what I said, isn't it? So now if we were ever without excuse uh, for our foolishness and our immaturity and our sin, um, I mean, it, it's, it's now. Um, and the flip side of people like me who never got to get published before is that people like me get to get published now, okay. which means I'm doing my best to try to offer something that I think is helpful, but I'm not as seasoned as I should be in saying some of these things. And, and a lot of we tend to, I think at least in writing, in writing my first book, Young Restless Reformed, back in 2008, I was trying to be respectful of older church leaders and to feature them and to offer my perspective on things. But, but that often really easily flips into whatever is new is best. Mm-hmm. So like David Platt, okay, well – well, I mean, he'll never write another book that's as big as Radical. So does that mean David Platt's old news? Yeah. Well, no, he's a young guy with, Lord willing, an entire wonderful career ahead of him as the president of the International Mission Board. But we're always looking for that next yeah. person, that next thing. And, and that's that's our short attention spans. That's our media culture. It's really the flip side of the positive part. So more than ever reasons to be encouraged and to be concerned. Yeah. It seems like when you, you mentioned publishing at a young age and, uh, people seem pretty split on that on, on whether or not people should wait longer. You know, you have the Kellers of the world who waited to publish and now he publishes like a book a week and (laughs) they're all bestsellers. (laughs) And, uh, and then you got, you know, people like you that are publishing at a younger age. What are, what just, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, generally, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with Keller, not just because I work for him, (laughs) because because I respect him. Um, the only thing, and, uh, and the book that we're going to talk about blind spots is actually largely, um, inspired by him. And actually I, I pitched the book to him. And he said, that actually sounds like a book that I might want to write someday. Yeah. And I said, well, I hope so, because it's largely built off your example um, yeah. of following Christ. And then I said, but I don't want to wait for you to write it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just went ahead and did it myself. All all errors are, are mine alone. But, but that was kind of how that book came about. Um, I mean, I think if you're writing about what you know – you're in a better spot. Yeah. So if you're looking to me to get what J.I. Packer is producing, 
then oh please do not bother right. with 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 me. But take for example, Young Restless Reformed. That was a book that only somebody who was in his mid twenties at the time could have written because it was something that only I had a vantage point on based on the generation because right. it was just the world that I knew. I was writing about just things that were obvious um, to me and my friends, um, but weren't so obvious to people who are 20 and 30 and 40 years older. So, so that, that question of what you know is good in some ways, but, um, but then that also means that's why we get a lot of young people writing about themselves. Sure, <laughs> And true. that becomes a problem because um, there's not always a lot of wisdom in a 20-something yep. uh, Christian. So you get a lot of the memoir genre, which is built off the blog genre. Yep. And, and I'll just say, if you look at, um, I mean, I can turn around, look on my shelf and a lot of Tim Keller titles. And there are certain things that he's done, whether it's walking with God through pain and suffering, his book on prayer, center church, things like that, mm-hmm. that could never be written by somebody who's young. Of course not. And so I guess some of the stuff that I'm writing is are things that I can write when I'm young and Lord willing, if I still have opportunities when I'm Keller's age, maybe then I can write something that's a little bit more lasting, hopefully like, yeah. like he's done. So I guess that's my way, Ryan, of trying yeah. to have it both ways. No, I think that's great. So when you think about, I was going to ask you about writers in particular, but I think there's so many different ways to produce content now, you know, whether it be like this medium, podcasting, social media, blogging, or publishing books. What, what advice would you give to content producers, aspiring content producers who want to be faithful and fruitful? Yeah. I mean, the good stuff is going to come out of deep thinking and experience. Um, that experience can come through. And again, that just takes time. That's part of the age thing that we're talking about there. But it's going to come through time of suffering, of watching other people suffer, people you love suffer. It's just going to come from going through difficult experiences, seeing the long view on things. Um, you know, we see. Uh, well, I'll just talk about something recently in terms of, in terms of the insight that comes for writing from experience and okay. time. So. We're, we're talking briefly just a couple days after Pew released um, a major study in religion in America. And if that had come out in 2007, evaluating the last seven years, um, that would have been my range of being in college to having worked for a few years. Yeah. So my life would have changed dramatically during that time. That would have been going to college, the September 11th attacks, um, getting married, graduating college, starting my job, moving to a different place, starting a home, a lot of transformation. And I just wouldn't have had context to see the long view of things. Yeah. As it is, though, from 2007 to 2014, well, now that's a different perspective for me. That's from when I started seminary through my time with the Gospel Coalition. And all of a sudden, some of the perspective I have on those major events changes a lot. And I'm I'm a little less hyperventilating, I think, about some of those trends. And I'm a little better able to discern what's really different and what's just kind of a long-term thing that we should come to expect. So part of it, part of just, you know, how you write, one of my recommendation is let experience come to you because God is going to, to teach you through that. But along with that experience, you have to be interpreting it 
um, in a godly fashion, and that starts with a deep knowledge of God's Word and extends to reading books that are going to challenge the way you think. So, I mean, I can just look around my office and, you know, I read a lot of blogs every day and there's a lot of good stuff being written out there. And I think at the Gospel Coalition, we're publishing a lot of that good stuff. But the stuff I need to be reading is stuff like Charles Taylor on A Secular Age or Jonathan Haidt on The Righteous Mind or any number comes some high-level stuff that allow me to think outside of my immediate context yeah. and to interpret things. So, so when I'm trying to give advice to writers, it's less about the technical, how to get published and things like that. Sure. And more like be challenging yourself to think deeply, to think God's thoughts after him from his word and to allow the, allow him to, to sanctify you through experience, often through hardship and just through time you put all that together and you get maturity. And when you get maturity, you have something to offer to other people yeah. in the form of writing. That's that, my recommendation. That's good. That's helpful. Uh, you mentioned your first book you wrote back in 2008, Young, Restless, Reformed. Uh, that came out of, that was the result of an article you wrote for Christianity Today, correct? Yeah, in 2006. Yeah. Yes. And so that became a book. And uh, just a couple questions about how you've kind of seen that evolve. That book hit at a really interesting point in time when the movement was just kind of picking up steam. And I believe there was a Time Magazine article about it and all that kind of stuff. So uh, just just for those that aren't super familiar with the terminology, um, we're talking about new what, what has been coined new Calvinism. How would you distinguish just briefly new Calvinism from old Calvinism? Yeah, new Calvinism is distinctively evangelical, um, meaning there's an emphasis on activism, on being born again. Um, there's a democratic ecclesiology, not exclusively so, but here's what I mean by that. Basically, just that it's more Baptistic yeah. or more Baptist. Um, take the Southern Baptist Convention as an example. That is the largest Protestant denomination, so, um, and its origins in the United States were largely Calvinistic. But for almost anybody who knew the SBC during the 20th century, they would not have thought of it as Calvinistic at all. They would have thought of it as revivalistic, very much in the mode of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, New Measures, trying to come up with ways to force a decision upon people to follow Jesus, a decisive, long, lifelong decision, but that comes at a a decisive moment, especially young in life, followed by baptism. Well, okay, so that... um, so as the new Calvinism in the, in the SBC comes along, it's pushing back against some of the older SBC to get back to the oldest SBC. Um, so it's a little bit confusing there. It's new compared to the 20th century, yep. but not new compared to like the early 19th or compared to the 19th century. Yeah. The other thing that's new about it is that because there are, at least in the United States, because there are so many more Baptists than there are any other denomination or any other kind of Christian, uh, in Protestantism at least, um, that when you see a lot of the prominent Calvinistic leaders, whether that be Al Mohler or John Piper, people who are emphasizing the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation, they're going to be Baptists, whereas historically most people have thought of Calvinists as John Calvin himself, more like Presbyterians or in Dutch Reformed denominations. So, so those denominations do continue to grow, and people like Tim Keller and Ligon Duncan and many others are a part of it. Now when you look at the broader sphere of Calvinism, it has a distinctively 
Baptistic flavor to it. And part of that's what makes it new. And I'd say that trend only continues to develop through Southern Baptist churches and through non-denominational churches since I wrote the book in 2008. What would be some specific ways that you've, since 2008, that you've really seen the movement evolve? It's evolved in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that I, that I would do differently if I were writing about it now. Um, some of that's very positive. I don't mention Tim Keller in the book. He didn't want to be interviewed for the book and uh, did not see himself as being a significant figure um, in that movement, but obviously he's become one. That book was published the same time as his first book, The Reason for God, and in the same year that The Prodigal God came out, which are his two best-selling books. So you see somebody like Tim Keller, and I think what he's done is given the movement a a specifically urban and missional um, uh, flavor to it. And, um, and I would say, though, the person who did that more so than Keller did before then was Mark Driscoll. Yeah. Um, but, of course, um, a lot of the changes in Mark's life have, have meant that I, I couldn't write about Mark the way that I did back then, mainly because it was an open question with Mark at the time how he would balance these different perspectives. So, you know, Calvinistic in his, in his theology, um, kind of church growth oriented in his ecclesiology, and then charismatic in practice. Right. And that's what made Mark, I think, so appealing to so many different people. But it is a volatile mix. And um, so I think there, there, I would have to just write differently about the situation and the changes at Mars Hill, of yeah. course, and that movement since then. I also, I do mention Reformed rap. In the book, um, I, may, I talked to Curtis Allen and Shy Lynn, but of course, the development of people yeah. like Lecrae, of course, especially Lecrae's mainstream yeah. uh, um, uh, appeal, as well as Trip Lee and just a host of other guys, that would have to be a much stronger uh, component to anything that I wrote. So, um, yeah, so a lot of changes over there, um, some good, some unfortunate. And um, just a different perspective. I think the biggest change, though, Ryan, is that when I published that book, a lot of people thought, I'm not sure this is a real thing. Yeah. At least older people. He might just be projecting his own experience. But now it's become axiomatic. This is just assumed among people that this is a major evangelical phenomenon, a major development. So I would be writing less as a is this really happening? And more of a documenting a major shift in evangelical theology in the 21st century. That's good. Well, it was a great book. I read it at a really pivotal time when I was just planting redemption and uh, it was super helpful for me, but I want to talk about the new book blind spots. Uh, it's great. I'm really hoping people will pick up a copy of this. And so we'll do all we can to get the word out. But I was wondering if you could just kind of give me a quick synopsis, uh, sort of what's the big idea of the book. A big idea of the book is that all of us are inflicted with blind spots, something that we're focused on our strengths, but we're missing our flanks. We're missing our weaknesses. Meanwhile, our fellow Christian travelers, they have their own strengths and they can see our weaknesses. So imagine ourselves all on a highway together, trying to follow Christ, plowing ahead, seeing that. But again, insofar as we're not noticing other Christians or only looking to their vulnerabilities and not to their strengths, we develop certain blind spots and isolation for them. So how this works out practically is that I see a lot of us inclined toward one or 
other particular aspects of Jesus's character. So we love that he's the courageous man who overturns the tables in the temple, or we love that he's the compassionate man who um, who weeps over Jerusalem, actually in Luke, right before he turns over the tables. Right. Or we love the guy who says um, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. I'm with you always till the end of the age, the, the Great Commission. So that's so we, we tend to, each of us, prioritize one of those aspects and then tend to be skeptical toward people who represent the other aspects. And what I'm hoping people will see is that each of our strengths in isolation is inflicted with some pretty significant weaknesses. And um, again, in isolation, where, where we're not comparing ourselves to Jesus so much as we're comparing ourselves to others. Right. And so it's great to be courageous. It's bad to be a jerk. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's wonderful to be compassionate. It's not good to use your compassion as an excuse for changing what God's word teaches. Yep. Um, it's great to be commissioned, but doesn't really mean much when you're getting a big crowd by telling people what they want to hear. Right. Um, but when we come together, we're able to challenge one another, encourage one another, reflect different aspects of Jesus, and thus be united in the body of Christ, roughly along the lines of what I believe he was asking of us in... Um, I mean, asking of us in his own ministry. Yeah. So. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If so, I want to ask you to help me make it as easy as possible for other people to find it on iTunes. And to do that, we have to increase our visibility, and that happens through listener reviews. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave a short review. It's that simple. Such a small price to pay for this great content. Every review makes a huge difference, so keep spreading the word, and thanks so much for your support. Now back to the conversation. Well, one of the things I found really refreshing and I think that gives greater power to your writing uh, is that you seem to write with a fair amount of empathy uh, mm. for those that, like, I, I think that I, I have a sense of probably which one of those three categories you most naturally fall into. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I wonder uh, if, like, so does your empathy, does it have anything to do with your background? Because I don't know too much about that. Like, how did you grow up? Uh, when did you come to faith? Kind of what's your faith tradition? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, Ryan. And I, that, that's a, that's a high compliment. I, I take that seriously and I, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that because I don't think I come naturally upon that at all. Um, okay. I, I tend strongly in the courageous direction and that's because my particular background and really the story of writing Young Restless Reformed was that I grew up in a mainline Protestant church we went at least about half the time, but my parents hated church. We really resented going. I did not get passed along to me with a lot of a lot of authority or conviction. And so, um, I mean, I had a. Uh, I remember t- one time talking with my pastor, and she said, "I don't. I don't think we should pray with expectation because God helps those who help themselves." Yeah, that's not thinking, great. Thinking that's not good. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin said that, and last <laughs> yeah. time I checked, he wasn't part of the canon. So yeah, um, and so you know, my parents didn't share my faith. Um, they did later. They were later baptized. Awesome. Yeah, about uh, about six or seven years after I became a Christian, seven or eight years maybe. And um, but yeah, my pastors didn't share it. My parents didn't share it. My teachers mocked me. My best friends didn't believe. So. Um, 
when you it's a sink or swim mentality. Um, I, I didn't go to a Christian college. Um, I went to college in the Chicago area at a private school, and you know, being a Christian wasn't very popular there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it again. It was it was sink or swim. It was like the parable of the soils. Um, thankfully, God had had made me some fertile ground to grow the seed of the gospel instead of letting um, the opposition of the world uh, choke choke out that that faith that unfortunately it did with a lot of my friends yeah so um, so I would not say the empathy comes naturally. The empathy had to come later when I was just getting bombarded with criticism um, with my writing. And I just could not figure out how to appeal to people who didn't, who had a very different experience. So the easiest way to explain it, Ryan, is that I can't relate personally in any way, shape, or form to all of these people who grew up in bad evangelical churches, yeah. who grew up in bad fundamentalist churches, who are always carrying a chip on their shoulder, and they're always doubting, always agitating, always pushing the boundaries. I simply could not understand that because I felt like that's where I came from. Yeah. And there's no hope in that in the in the place of of questioning scripture to the point where it's incidental yeah. to our lives. And so the empathy had to come and say, there may be some people I'm just never gonna agree with and some people who are always gonna hate what I have to say. But I have an obligation as I have a pastoral obligation or just an obligation of love toward other Christians to see things from their perspective. And if I want to minister to them effectively, I have to speak in a way that they can understand. And, and I have to just not say, what's your problem? The Bible's clear. Right. What's, I mean, why, why don't you just get it? Like, you're abandoning Christian orthodoxy. 2,000 years, what is your deal? Just figure it out. Right. I had to speak in a way that said, okay, I understand why you might be fearful of this, but I had to speak in such a way that would show by, by following this path, you're not going to find life. This is where it leads. But here's how the gospel enters your story and transforms you and actually delivers you from anger toward those people who abused you or those people who treated you poorly or those people who ignored you. I mean, it's how it liberates and gospel liberates you from caring so much about what this world thinks. That's where my courageous part comes back in and can help that. But you're exactly right, Ryan. Like you can't do that without empathy. And so hopefully the vision of blind spots is helping a lot of people, maybe especially people like me in that courageous camp, to empathize with people who don't assume the best of church leadership yeah. all the time. Yeah. That's my hope. Well, it seems like part of what you're trying to do in helping us identify our blind spots is really help increase our own self-awareness, yeah, which exactly. is sadly you know, not a strength for lots of people. Oddly enough, um, I have a lot of pastor friends and know, met a lot of pastors, and it seems like it's not always a great strength amongst, amongst pastors even. Yeah. So um, what do you think are some keys just in general to growing in self-awareness? I'm not even necessarily yeah. talking just as it pertains to the book, but just as a human, yeah. how can we grow in self-awareness? Uh, first of all, Ryan, we've got to know that um, biog- our theology is biography. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to think of ourselves as, as disembodied heads 
who just sat there and rationally thought through all of the various different options and made the right conclusion. Yeah. But the reality is that we are driven by our passions, by our loves, by our instincts, by our relationships, by our fears, um, by a lot of really bodily, earthy, biographical aspects of yeah. our lives. And so that ought to give us self-awareness and it ought to give us humility. It ought to give us thankfulness because knowing that God was in control of that, that he gave us what was good even when it didn't seem good at the time. So part of it is understanding theology as biography, not exclusively so, but far more than we're allowed, that we allow, allow ourselves to understand much of the time. It's also a matter of reading outside your comfort zone and just being around people who are very different from you. So just to give you an example, um, I moved from Chicago to New York City, and then now I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I've lived here for three years. And one of the things that I wanted to do immediately after moving here was, well, actually in my preparation for moving here, was read a lot more about the civil rights movement because to everybody outside Birmingham, that's probably the only thing they know mm -hmm. about our city. But inside Birmingham, it's not something that people talk about very much. It's not something people study about because, I mean, for obvious reasons, it's pretty painful um, to think about. I mean, we walk the streets where some horrible things happened. And so I, I wanted to develop a kind of, kind of self-awareness of, of how other people were perceiving me as a white man living in a wealthy suburb in Birmingham, Alabama. And so I had to read outside my comfort zone and really try to become an expert on the history of the civil rights era. And I'd say that when things like uh, the Ferguson situation or Baltimore or like that break out, yeah. knowing a lot of that history makes all the difference of understanding some of the pain and the anger and, and, and some of the origins of the conflict, even when it's not rational or even based on actual fact in some cases. So part of it's, so, so that's part of what's going on. It also then helps you to understand that nostalgia is a great enemy, I think, to faithfulness and effectiveness in ministry. Not because we can't learn from the past, we should learn from the past, but because what might look like Eden to you might look like yeah. hell to someone else. That's a good word. So when you look back on, if I look back and said, oh man, if we could only, well, I'll put it this way, Ryan, there are a lot of Southern Baptist churches in Birmingham, Alabama that still say, if we could just get back to what worked in the 50s and 60s, then everything would be better again. And so younger pastors are coming in, they're getting ground up and chewed out because they have members in their 70s and 80s who are pining for the 50s and 60s. Okay, well, let's talk about the 50s and 60s. Um, I don't think our black evangelical brothers and sisters think that was a very fun time. Right. I don't think they want to return back to that era. So part of self-awareness is being able to not just be introspective, but to actually find, to see yourself from other people's That's a great perspectives. Word. And um, that makes a big difference. The last thing I'll say about that is when I moved down here, my father-in-law, who's lived here his entire life except for a stint for the Navy in San Diego and a stint as a medical resident in Atlanta, and he said, I'm excited for you moving to Birmingham, Colin, but now every time you write, Colin Hansen from Birmingham, Alabama, you're a white man from Birmingham. 
Hmm. And that and that that will shape entirely people's perceptions of yeah. you. And so we are not just a blank canvas and an open book to the world. Like we're judging each other. And what I'm trying to hopefully do in blind spots is to is to judge by the standard of Christ more than we judge by the standard of this world, um, because it it creates a whole lot of problems. Yeah. There, I mean, for any of this to be accomplished that you're writing about, talking about, we have to see a massive increase of humility to have the ears to hear the things that your my, my I think my greatest concern with your book is just that people won't hear it. <laughs> and uh, so we have to continue to pray and, and pursue to that end. Last thing I really want to ask you is, is in thinking about these three categories, the courageous, compassionate, commissioned kind of types of Christians or, or bent, I want to ask you about that on the personal end and then the corporate end, we as the church body, mm-hmm. should we all strive to be all three and as individuals and should churches strive to be strong in all three of those things? Or should we kind of humbly acknowledge that we need, you know, strong, courageous churches, strong, compassion churches, strong, commission churches? Do you yeah. think that every church and every Christian should embody all three? Or do we need to just kind of embrace our strengths and be thankful for, you know, people who have strengths that we don't? Oh, I love that question, Ryan. That is the mark of somebody who's read and understood the book. I really Good. appreciate it. Um, I'm really the, the answer is is both okay. um, because well, first of all, I love I do love the language of striving. However, I want to reorient it toward the language of blessing. Okay, because insofar as we've been united with Christ, we have all of His strengths. That's I mean, right. we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so even if I'm you know priding myself on my self control, I've also been gifted with with kindness i mean as a fruit of the holy spirit in my life uniting me with christ so so yes our personality our particular gifting and our experiences will nudge us in one direction or another that's fine but the fruit of the spirit shows that all of this ought to be demonstrated just because i'm you know, I, I'll go on TV and argue with people about some social issue. Yeah. Doesn't mean that somehow I'm exempt from working in the soup kitchen or exempt from um, sharing the gospel with my neighbor. Right. Um, all of those are simply disciplines. Um, but there may, but not everybody in the church maybe wants to go on cable TV and debate with other right. people right. or should do that, and that's fine. Yeah. For those people who are that way and. And I'm going to help in the soup kitchen, but I'm not going to run the soup kitchen. I'm yeah. probably not the person you want to, to run your counseling ministry, even though I do need to be able to love other people and counsel yeah. in the power of the gospel. Um, so on and on and on. So that's for individuals. For churches, similarly, the striving uh, is important, but the blessing is paramount. So the blessing is that this is the vision of 1 Corinthians 12. Um, he has given, he's gifted some in a certain way and some in another way for the sake of all. So we sacri- we, we, we serve according to these giftings for the sake of others. That's the vision that Christ is laying out and that he has, he, I mean, we are his body, not we strive to be his body, but we are his body. So this is what he's made us to be in the local church. However, you will still have churches that are going to take on 
especially the characteristics probably of their lead pastor, who, mm-hmm. who's a, whoever is in the pulpit a lot. So even as we accept and give thanks for the blessing of the body of Christ in its full diversity, we're probably still going to have churches that lean in one direction or another. So that's why in our communities, we can hopefully turn things around. And instead of seeing everything as a competition, we can see it as, um, as a partnership. And I would say, Ryan, that just the challenges that we're facing in this culture are too great for any of us individually or as local churches to go it alone. Yeah. We need each other. And I also think one of the last books I did was on the history of revival. And I would say that a true mark of a church that's understanding this vision is a church that prays for revival and says, Lord, come wherever it will, um, even yeah. if it comes first to the church down the street yeah. from me, um, and to not forsake that blessing just because they're wrong yeah. on some things. Again, I'm not trying to say that you can be wrong about the most important things, no, clearly the gospel, not. but I'm trying to say that um, the Lord's at work through other believers and yeah. other churches. And um, if we're going to get past seeing each other as the enemy, um, then we're going to have to appreciate that. And we're going to have to work together because uh, the world needs the witness that God has given us in Christ. Yeah, that's so good. And I think for for our individual churches to have any hope of growing and becoming more well-rounded, if you will, in all three of these things, we have to be willing to humbly learn from people, especially, I think this is especially true for pastors, humbly learn from people who are strong where we're not naturally um, strong. And uh, you can't do that if you only demonize everyone who's different than you. And so to that end, thank you very much for the book. I hope that it's very well read and I hope that people have ears to hear and uh, and will receive it, man. So thanks for the conversation today. I appreciate it. And thank you, Ryan. One of the greatest problems facing the church today is the pride that prohibits our ability to perceive the strengths of churches and people that we may differ with. And I love these three categories that Colin has bucketed churches into. I've been a part of all three types. I have friends who pastor all three types. And what I wish is I I wish that we could better see uh, our need for one another. Imagine what would happen if we all had the humility to hear one another, to learn from one another, and leverage the gifts of those who are strong where we may struggle. This doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we have to pretend that we don't have differences. It does mean that we have to acknowledge that Christ has built a diverse church. It does mean that we all have to humbly acknowledge that we don't get everything right all the time. And it does mean we have to intentionally cross tribal lines and engage people in genuine relationship for God's glory and the growth of Christ's church. So here's my question. Are you living in a way where that's possible? In your own heart, online, and in your community? Maybe you need to repent of pride. Maybe you need to change your diversive tone on Twitter. Maybe you need to invite another local pastor out for coffee. Let's have the humility to hear others speak into our blind spots. Well, that's it for this episode, but if you'd like to enter to win a free copy of Colin's new book, Blind Spots, then head over to my blog at ryanhugley.com and share the giveaway phrase on Twitter. This Friday, we'll choose a winner at random, and the book is yours. It's that simple. Don't forget, there's lots of ways that you can connect with me. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley. You can stay up to date on upcoming episodes by liking our Facebook page, and you can find that at facebook.com slash itrpodcast. And you can also find more content and show notes on my blog at ryanhughley.com. We'll be back next week with episode 31 in my conversation with Nancy Ortberg. 
Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.